generation ago, Richard Niebuhr wrote, the disorder of secularism is perhaps nowhere more apparent in our contemporary church than in the extent to which we have permitted the order of the world to creep into the order of the church. The Church of Jesus Christ has the responsibility to be a light to the culture, guiding it into truth and righteousness. We were designed to be a positive influence on our culture. We are, as has been said, to be against the world for the world. C.S. Lewis called this the two-edged character of the Christian faith. But instead, what has sadly been the case, historically more often than not, the culture has influenced the church more than the church has influenced the culture. Os Guinness, in his book Prophetic Untimeliness, put it like only Os Guinness can. In short, of all the cultures the church has lived in, the modern world is the most powerful, the most pervasive, and the most pressurizing. And it has done more damage to Christian integrity and effectiveness than all the persecutors in church history. That's saying a lot in view of the epistle that we're about to begin to study this morning. For in the first century, there was a culture that negatively influenced a church in a pretty big way. The culture was so strong, it was so powerful, that the infant church planted there by the Apostle Paul was in continual danger of conforming to the culture rather than being a positive influence on that culture. We speak, of course, of the city of Corinth. Let me clarify before we go too far into this study. Right up front, I want to say that the Christian is under no mandate whatsoever to divorce themselves from the culture. If we did, there would be no evangelism. There would be no representation of Christ at all. That's not what we're called to do. If we never engage the culture, we cannot fulfill our roles as ambassadors for Christ. If we hide a light under a bed, what good does it do? How can that light be seen by people that are outside of our home? We are never called upon to completely divorce ourselves from the culture. That's not what this is all about. Our citizenship is in heaven, but currently we do reside on earth. And we have responsibilities here in our place of residence. The idea is to engage our culture without being stained by the culture. There's been a conflict within the Christian church that's been bubbling at least two decades. And that conflict is how much should the church adapt its methods to the culture when it comes to reaching the lost. Exactly what do we need to do when it comes to that? How much should we do? When it comes to the church meeting the culture, how far should we go? Well, let me answer it this way. Christ loved sinners. He ministered to sinners as they were where they were. And I don't mean to be crude here at all, but Jesus Christ didn't become a prostitute to minister to prostitutes. He showed them a better way. He lifted them up out of the sin that they were in and showed them something better. Actually, that's what they wanted. If their life was so good to begin with, they wouldn't be seeking something else. That's what they want. They want something better, something more fulfilling, something that will answer the, give the answers to life's ultimate questions. 
Who am I? What am I doing here? Where am I going? They need answers to those questions. So while Christ ministered to sinners, he didn't become one. And that's the fine line that we need to make sure that we don't cross. And that's going to be a major theme throughout the epistle that we begin to study, 1 Corinthians. It would be very difficult indeed to understand either 1st or 2nd Corinthians without an understanding of the cultural setting in Corinth at the time. That can be said of all Paul's letters, but it's especially true of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. My plan is to study those both back to back. It'll take some time, but it'll be worth it, I promise you. There is so much to say, in fact, regarding the background of these two epistles that I don't want to say it all today. It would go way too long. So I'm going to sprinkle it out through the first several lessons. The various socioeconomic, intellectual, and moral, or I probably should say immoral, overlays on this culture of Corinth had a profound influence on this church. A profound influence. It's clear that one of the major concerns of this letter is that the culture in Corinth is influencing the church at Corinth far more than the church at Corinth was influencing that culture. Corinth was an ancient city. It was a prosperous city before and after the golden years of Athenian Greece in the 5th century B.C. But following the death of Alexander the Great, the Greek prominence in that city slowly gave way to Roman superiority, not just in that city, but around the world. And the Romans ended up conquering Corinth in 146 B.C. In fact, 146 B.C. was a special year for in Roman history. Rome conquered not just Corinth that year, but they conquered Carthage to end the Third Punic War. So it was a big year for Rome. I'm sure there were many celebrations. But when the Romans conquered the Corinthians, they did what Romans did. Just like they did in Jerusalem in A.D. 70, they flattened the place. They flattened it completely, and for 100 years, approximately 100 years, after 146 B.C., for approximately 100 years, the city of Corinth lay bare until it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar shortly before his assassination. Caesar refounded the city of Corinth for two primary reasons, I think. First, it occupied a strategic location for commerce. I guess there's a Mantra in real estate, location, location, location. Corinth had the location. It was inevitable that Corinth would be rebuilt. It was just too strategically located. And since money makes the world go round, and Corinth is located at a position where people can make money, it got rebuilt. Second, and this is going to be really influential in the Corinthian culture and how it affects the church, Rome was becoming overpopulated. And the Romans in Rome needed a place to send the people that they didn't feel like were just quite up to Roman citizens being able to live in Rome. So they needed a colony. They had them all over the world, but they used Corinth as a colony to send people elsewhere besides just Rome. And Corinth is the perfect fit. The historian Strabo recorded that most of the people who initially repopulated Corinth were freedmen whose status was just above that of a slave. Living in Corinth provided these freedmen with an opportunity for economic prosperity that they would have never had in Rome. So they were happy to have it. Economic prosperity came to, Rome, uh, came to Corinth almost immediately. And since the, the opportunity for economic prosperity was there, 
people from other places besides just Rome started to immigrate to Corinth. It was a very cosmopolitan city in that way. People from Asia, people from Egypt came in, and they brought their religions with them. Both east and west sent people into the city of Corinth. The primary people group, though, was Roman. And being a Roman colony, they brought with it Roman law, Roman thought, Roman culture, and Roman religion. But in spite of that, Corinth still somehow regained a feel of being a very Greek city. After its refounding, a hundred years after its destruction, the Greek influence in the areas of religion, philosophy, and the arts were very strong in Corinth. Again, that's going to have something to do with how we understand 1 Corinthians. So it's very cosmopolitan. One New Testament scholar put it this way. He said, at one, at the same, one in the same time, Corinth was New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. All at once. The resulting culture was marked by a very strong bent toward the supremacy of philosophy, significant disparity between the socioeconomic classes, and what Corinth is known for, and that's immorality. Not surprisingly, these are the three areas that are going to work against this young church. The supremacy of philosophy, the disparity between socioeconomic classes, and then immorality. I want to consider each of these just very briefly in an introductory way. And, and I want to show you how they're going to play a part in our study of 1 Corinthians. While Corinth was never Athens when it came to a center of education or philosophy, nevertheless... There was a prevailing attitude in Corinth of intellectual elitism. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, the Bible says. There are people who fool themselves into thinking that they're a little smarter than they are, and they often confuse the quality of a presentation with the quality of the ideas in that presentation. You follow me? Sometimes when people aren't quite as smart as they think they are, they're baffled by the presentation. In our culture today, everything is presentation. Everything is presentation. You can have a lousy product and present it in a way that's really attractive and people are going to buy it anyway. Now, they may not read by it, but they're going to buy it the first time. We're a culture that does judge a book by its cover. And they were a culture that did that too. The way something was presented was extremely important to the Greeks. And it's extremely important to the Greeks in New Corinth, and we're going to find that it's actually extremely important to the Greeks in this church at Corinth. They were more impressed with how something was said than what's, what was actually said. And this is going to be a problem for this young church. Let me give you a preview. One of the ways it's going to be a problem is there were people that were more eloquent than the Apostle Paul in the ancient world. Sometimes we read his writings and say, how can that be? But it's a reality. And the people at Corinth were familiar with orators that said things in a whole lot more eloquent way than Paul, eloquent way than Paul said them. So they're judging the quality of his message by the quality of the presentation of his message. And Paul's going to say, time out, hold on just one minute. Let's stop for just a minute. A message is more than just the quality of the presentation. He's saying, don't be fooled by that. So they were the kind of people in Corinth that would judge a book by its cover. We would say you ought not to judge a book by its cover. You can't judge, always judge a book by its cover. But they were happy to do that. That's one problem. The second problem 
was money. And this happens not just in Corinth. This is something that's it's even around today. There was a great deal of money that was made in Corinth, no doubt. But not everyone made the same amount of money. So there developed in Corinth a vanishing middle class. There were really wealthy people and there were people that were becoming increasingly poor. And that created a problem. In the church, as we studied in James a few years ago, it ought not to be a problem. There ought to be no social economic distinctions within a church. Either the church universal or the local church. That's sinful when that happens. Remember James said how it's a sin when you have the man with the gold ring come in and you put him on the front, front row and say, you, can I get you anything? Then the poor man comes in and you ignore him altogether. That was happening in James's day. It's happening in the church at Corinth and it unfortunately still happens in the church today. That is a sin of monumental proportions and it needs to be expelled. Paul's going to deal with that in 1 Corinthians. And as to the issue of Corinthian immorality... Corinth had a reputation for immorality that went back several hundred years before the establishment of the Corinthian church in New Corinth. In fact, the reputation of ancient Corinth was so bad that the name Corinth itself became a synonym for fornication. Corinthianazo. That meant to act like a Corinthian. To fornicate. Now, how would you like the name of your city to become a synonym for fornication? That's the reputation of ancient Corinth. Cult prostitutes were a fixture in ancient Corinth. Not New Corinth, but ancient Corinth. But even in New Corinth, immorality was strong. Some like to say that New Testament commentators and some pastors like to overplay the idea of Corinthian immorality. Donald Guthrie, in his classic New Testament introduction, says that immorality in Corinth was probably no worse than the immorality in any port city of the ancient world. The argument being that whenever you bring money and sailors and women all into the same spot, it's inevitable that there was going to be some immorality issues. Port cities were port cities, and this is the culture that Paul's having to deal with. Fornication was a big problem in the city of Corinth, and it looks like some things are going on within the church at Corinth that Paul's going to say is even going to embarrass the people out there. In order for us to understand what he means by that, we've got to understand that the people out there were pretty immoral. And Paul's going to say the things that are going on inside here are worse than what's going on out there. This ought not to be. Corinthian immorality is an issue. Even if the problem in New Corinth wasn't as bad as it was in Old Corinth, it's still worse than other places Paul ministered to. This is a significant problem in the church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul will address 11 concerns that have come to his attention. Ten of which have to do with behavioral issues. Only one is theological. But at the same time, even though only one is outright theological, that's the issue with regard to the resurrection, the other ten, while they're behavioral issues, do have theological undertones. So not only will we study the issues that are brought up, but we'll need to go back and study at the same time the theology behind that issue. When the Bible says don't fornicate, there's a reason for it. It's not just so that we won't have fun 
It's not just that God is trying to deprive us of pleasure. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why we should be unified and present a unified front to a lost and dying world. One of the underlying questions, though, to all 11, the 10 of behavioral and the one theological, the Corinthians had a problem with exactly what is spirituality. And I should say they, they have a problem with what should be Christian spirituality. Because other religions, and I put that in quotes, other religions have spirituality to them too. They just define it differently. And believe you me, the Greek culture had a lot of spirituality. The Oracle of Delphi, some people call it Delphi, it's really pronounced Delphi, it was at that time anyway. The, the Oracle of Delphi was a, a place where a lot of really strange things happened. One of the things that happened at Delphi, or Delphi if you prefer, one of the things that happened there was when someone would come to seek counsel from the oracle, they often would find the priests and priestesses there dancing around, uttering some really strange things that didn't make any sense at all, just babbling. That was the spirituality that they were used to in the Corinthian culture. So is it any wonder that when it comes to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, where they're having a problem with spiritual gifts, that they have imported something from their culture and they're calling it Christian spirituality. You see why I say we've got to understand some things of the culture before we're going to understand what's going on in each of these individual sections. They had problems with conflict. There were factions within the church at Corinth. We can see that in the very first chapter. Some people preferred Paul. Maybe some people preferred Peter, Apollos, and then some say, I prefer Christ. There were factions within the church, but what we're going to see as we go through the epistle is the biggest faction actually wasn't within the church. It was the whole church against the Apostle Paul. As a church, they were questioning his leadership, his apostolic authority. Who are you to tell us what to do? If we wanted to boil it all down to three things, we could use the words learn, love, and live. What the Apostle Paul is going to tell him, sit down and close your mouth and learn something. Listen to me and learn something. Once they learned something, they needed to apply it. And then they could live the spiritual life. But it's got to be in that order. They needed to learn. Then they needed to apply that to experience and the ultimate application of all that we learn is love. And that's why the central passage in 1 Corinthians is going to be chapter 13. It all revolves around that. I don't know why Paul didn't just start there, but he's the one that was under the ministry of the Holy Spirit writing it. It's all about love. That will solve all the problems that they're having. All ten behavioral problems could be solved if they would just exercise love. And then they could live the spiritual life. But so many people, then and today, are trying to live a spiritual life without learning anything and without applying anything that they know. And it can't be done. Learn, love, and live will be Paul's motto in this letter. So when Paul begins the letter in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, he's making a point. This isn't just a simple greeting. There's only two places he does this. This is one of the two. He's called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's making a point. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. 
being called an apostle doesn't mean that that's his new first name. You know, apostle Paul, that, that's not just what he's called in that sense. No, it stresses that he was appointed an apostle. And the appointment was not by the other apostles or by some committee, some search committee, some apostolic search committee. The appointment was by God himself, by the will of God. So you see, when they're asking this question, who are you to tell us what to do? He said, well, I'll tell you who I am to tell you what to do. I'm an apostle, and I'm an apostle by the will of God. That's who I am to tell you what to do. The first thing they need to do is learn something. Listen to me and learn something. When I would get out of line as a teenager, and I did once or twice or hundred times, I forgot exactly how many it was, my dad had this phrase. You know, there's, there's catchphrases. Whenever he would call me sport, I knew that there was trouble brewing. Big trouble there. But the thing he said most often, especially when we were having a serious discussion, for which most of the time I didn't know what in the world I was talking about, but I thought I did. Because I was in high school or even in college. And in college, you know what you're talking about, right? He'd say, listen to me and learn something, sport. You got them all in the same sentence. Listen to me and learn something. I think that's what Paul is doing here. In the very first sentence, you want to know why I can tell you what to do? Listen to me and learn something. It's really important. I'm an apostle. Not because I wanted to be an apostle. In fact, I think by this time, if Paul could have chosen something different, he'd have been more than happy to do it. Because we're going to see throughout this letter, he does practice what he preaches. He has already learned something. And now he's going to practice love on these people that gave him more problems than probably any other church. Man, I would say all of the other churches combined. Yet he stuck with them. He didn't leave them. He stays with them in spite of the fact that they treat the Apostle Paul like dirt. The overwhelming percentage of the time, they treat him like dirt. But yet he still ministers to them. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's making a point there. He has the right to tell them what to do because he is on a mission from God and he has been given authority from God himself to do it. Now we know very little of Sosthenes. But it's clear as this letter progresses that Paul is the author, not Sosthenes. Paul is called an apostle by God. Sosthenes is just said to hear, here to be our brother. So he's a companion of Paul at that moment. And the letter is addressed to the church at Corinth. It's appropriate at this time to make sure that we understand the difference between the church with a big C and a church with a little C. Pine Valley Bible Church is little C church. It's a local church. The body of Christ, the church universal, is the church with a big C. By definition, everyone in the universal church, the body of Christ, is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. By definition. In fact, that's going to be one of the issues that comes up in 1 Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by means of one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body. We've all been baptized in one body. And that's interesting because sometimes people mess up this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and thinks that it's something that occurs after salvation at some subsequent point in time and happens only for special people. Paul's going to debunk that idea, throw it right out the window. For by means of one spirit, we've all been baptized into one body. The Holy Spirit's baptism places us into the body of Christ. That's called the universal church. If you happen to be with us on Wednesday nights when we studied Ephesians sometime back, we were speaking primarily about the universal church. There are universal church issues. There are some local church issues. 
but mainly universal church. In the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul's dealing primarily with local church issues there. So when Paul says the church at Corinth, he's speaking to a local church at this point. Now, by definition, everyone that's in the big C church, the universal church, the body of Christ, is a believer. Otherwise, you can't be there. By definition, there are no unbelievers in the body of Christ. When it comes to a local church, we wish it was that way. In fact, one of the things that I will ask you if you choose to join our church formally in membership, one of the things I'll ask you is, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you say yes, then you got the first one right. (laughs) But if you happen to say, well, I'm not really sure about that, then we're going to talk about that before we talk about church membership. Because we would certainly like to see everyone in the local church be a believer as well. That's the way it's supposed to be theoretically, but I assure you it's not. I know people that have taught Sunday school in local churches for decades that are not believers in the Lord Jesus. I have a cousin. I've never really spoken to him as an adult, but I have a cousin on my mom's side that went to Yale Divinity School, came out as an agnostic, taught at a church in Arizona for three decades as their pastor, and didn't believe a word of what he was saying. He's not a believer in the Lord Jesus. It's insulting. So we need to make sure we understand that just because someone's a member of a local church doesn't necessarily mean they're saved. You can attend church all day long, it doesn't make you a believer. And as a friend of mine in seminary wrote a country western contemporary Christian song and said you can sit in the driveway all day long and not turn into a car. Just because you belong to a local church doesn't mean that you're a Christian. There is a difference between the big C church and the small C church. As Paul writes this letter, he's writing to believers, those who have been sanctified. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's recognizing at least that there's a theoretical possibility that people there may not be sanctified. So he's writing to the church, and specifically I'm writing to the church, to the people in that church that are believers. Those who have been set apart in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Now they have a calling too. Paul's called an apostle. They're called saints. And this is interesting. There's some people that think that You have to go through this big procedure with the Pope and with the church councils and all that to be declared a saint. No, you don't. You're a saint already. This word saint just really means to be one who's set apart. When you trusted Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, that's the only way you're going to get there. But when you trust Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, when you place your faith and your faith alone in Him, the Holy Spirit takes you and sets you apart. You're not who you used to be anymore. You're now in the body of Christ. You're set apart. That's all saint means. It just means a set apart one. He's writing to people who have been set apart. He's writing to believers. The only book in the Bible that has, as its express purpose, written down in the text, the evangelization of the unbeliever is the Gospel of John. Now, there's a lot of information in John for believers, But all the rest of the New Testament letters, all the rest of the material in the New Testament in particular, is written to believers to help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The fact that they're called saints just means that they've been set apart, and Paul's recognizing that right away. You see what he's done? He said, I'm an an apostle, and I've been appointed an apostle by God. You are a saint. You've been set apart. And how'd you get set apart? And that's by God too. That's your calling. With all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. Now what he's doing is he's making sure they understand you are a local church. 
You're this small body. But you're also associated with the bigger body. You're a subset of the universal church. That's something that we would do well to remember also. In our current culture today, there's so much business has been incorporated into the life of the church that it's been a competitive thing. It's become competitive. I know of one pastor who was asked to step down in Houston after a 30-year ministry, a powerful 30-year ministry, and he told me this himself. The elder board told him, we're not competing with, I won't name the church here in Houston, it's so large. That's why we'd like for you to step down. That's ridiculous. Where's the spirituality in that? There's a competitive thing here. We need to remember that, yes, we are a local church, but we're part of a bigger body. If someone else has trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, they are my brother in Christ. They are my sister in Christ. I don't care what their skin color is. I minister all over the world. I've had a great privilege of doing that. And I tell you what, that's one thing that it'll do for you. Is it'll let you see that there are believers out there that don't look like me. They don't sing like me. Thank goodness. They don't dress like me. But they love the Lord Jesus just as much as I do. Now, they may not have as much information about Christ as I do. And that's what we're trying to do is get them the information so that that love will be really true love. But I'm I'm telling you what, they're part of a bigger body. So there shouldn't be any competition in Christianity. There shouldn't be all this maligning and judging of other churches. It's not lovely. It doesn't make us look lovely at all to start putting down another church or another pastor. Just, let's just keep it to ourselves. Now, there are some things that probably deserve to get put down, frankly. But we need to keep it to ourselves because it, it doesn't endear us to someone else. It is not enchanting for us to just malign other churches or other pastors. Paul, in a very small way, is saying that here. You're a member of a local church, but you're also a member of a larger group. That's why he finishes verse 2 by saying, With all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours, we worship the same Lord. Don't get me wrong. I'm not excusing some things that churches do. I'm not excusing that at all. I'm just saying it's not our place. We're not their master. To their own master they answer, not to me and not to you. As a matter of custom, I don't want anybody from Pine Valley knocking another church. If you want to say something, say something good about yours. You don't have to say something bad about someone else's. And you don't have to balance it either. You don't have to balance anything good you say about this one with a bad one about somebody else. Or a bad one with a good one. You don't have to do any of that. We're part of a bigger group. We all worship the same Lord, if they truly have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. And if you've come in this morning and you've never done that, I I certainly would encourage you to do that today. God did love you so much. He loved the whole world so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. If you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ, I want you to do that today. You'll be part of that big body too, and perhaps you choose to be part of our local church as well. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a typical Pauline greeting where he combines a Hebrew mindset with a Greek mindset. The word peace here is analogous to the Hebrew word shalom. It means more than just the absence of hostilities. It means a little bit of prosperity as well. This was a common greeting among Jewish people. There were Jews and Gentiles in the church at Corinth. 
So he says, basically, shalom to them. When he says grace, he's, he's saying charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, charis. If I was to approach you, if I was an ancient Greek citizen and I would have approached you in the street and I wanted to just say hello to you, I would have said kaire opilo, kaire opilo, that means, hey, buddy, hey, friend, how you doing? Something like that, kaire. Well, what Paul's doing is he's taking that greeting, kaire, and he's converting it just slightly into a Christian greeting, charis. So he's saying grace, charis, and shalom, grace and peace, or charis and irene in in the Greek language. It's a greeting that pulls in both groups. It's very common for Paul to do. In these first three verses, Paul establishes his right to tell them what to do. You're going to ask me what right do I have to talk to you about these things? I'll tell you what right that I have to talk to you about these things. I've been called an apostle not by my own will, but by the will of God himself. I've been appointed as an apostle. And that sets the stage for one of the overall themes of the entire epistle. And that is that these believers at Corinth need to remember that they're part of a body. They're part of a local body that's part of a bigger body that has a responsibility. And they have a responsibility to the culture in which they live. Right now, as Paul writes this letter, the culture at Corinth was so pervasive, it was seeping in through the walls. And the church at Corinth really did not have any distinguishable features to it that would have distinguished it from the outside at all. When someone came into the church, they would see nothing different at all. It would look just like the culture. And Paul says, that's wrong. We've got to stop that. You're part of a special group. You need to be influencing this culture rather than having this culture influence you. Jesus Christ needed to be their model for living, not what they saw out on the streets. So there are three words that are going to summarize Paul's message in 1 Corinthians. Learn. Love. Live. 